Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, we're discussing clinical trials, and in particular, the regulatory regime for them in the UK. With me to discuss that are Dr. Giles Campion, Head of Research and Development of Silence Therapeutics, and Professor Sir Gordon Duff, who is Chairman of the Science Advisory Board of Silence Therapeutics, and until 2021, was Principal of St. Hilda's College, Oxford. Welcome, both of you, to the podcast. Thank you. So, Giles, starting with you, before we dive into clinical trials themselves, could you give us the background on Silence Therapeutics and the work that the company's involved with? So thank you, Gavin, and I'll be um, very happy to. Uh, Silence is, I guess you'd call a cutting-edge UK-based biotech company with operations in Germany and the US, as well as the UK, that has been working to develop precision medicines for the past 20 years. The way we do this is in our name, Silence Therapeutics. We use RNA technology called sRNA to silence disease-causing genes. As an example of the impressive potential of this technology, a recent early phase trial for one of our drugs reduced a genetic risk factor for heart disease for up to 98%, with effects lasting 150 days after a single dose. And almost unprecedented for an early phase trial, these results were presented at a recent American College of Cardiology meeting, together with simultaneous publication in the Journal of American Medical Association. And as this risk factor affects 20% of the population, the potential is huge, as is the momentum for the company in transformative development. I think the next thing I'd like to say is that as a small company working in a global marketplace, we have to punch our weight uh, above our weight, and we rely on collaborating with others to do this. We can essentially do this anywhere, but we have been really impressed with the world-class enabling scientific infrastructure that has been established in places like Harwell for bioscience and Strathclyde for manufacturing, which provides us with the very competitive ecosystem for developing our type of new medicines. And right now, we think there's a huge opportunity to make drugs available to patients in a much more efficient manner with assets such as our world-class universities and regulators, enabling an infrastructure, as well as the tremendous potential of the NHS, we really have an opportunity post-COVID and post-Brexit to become a bioscience superpower. If we get this right, it could have major implications for the health and wealth of the nation. Well, let's talk a little bit about that regulation and clinical trials. So from your recent experience, Giles, what's your perspective on the current regulatory environment in the UK for research companies like like Silence? Well, for innovative small biotech companies such as Silence, early stage clinical trials are absolutely key. They are the gateway for the translation of fundamental science to health gains and are strategic for further investment and development. While we've seen major advances in chemistry and biology, particularly the role of the genome in disease, we've also unfortunately seen a marked decline in the number of early phase trials in the UK since 2014. And between 2017 to 20, it fell 29%. I feel that key to being a life science superpower is the MHRA, our regulatory body, which needs to stay ahead of technological advancements, uh, advancements such as mRNA technology, to facilitate scientific progress. For example, the ability to validate targets through resources such as the UK Biobank and techniques such as Mendelian randomization can enormously increase confidence in the drug targets we use. 
Tools such as machine learning can improve the ability to predict unwanted effects, and modern technology can restrict delivery to cells containing the respective genes. These advances need to be reflected in our discussions with the regulators. Finally, I think the MHRA should engage more with smaller companies. After all, 85% of innovative medicines now originate in small companies. And the MHRA should be part of a wider regulatory infrastructure that supports efficient early stage clinical trials. Gordon, moving over to you, what, what's yeah. your own perspective on uh, the regulatory environment uh, in the UK at the moment? Well, I worked with the MHRA as an independent uh, advisor for quite a number of years before actually becoming the chairman of, of the agency. And I, I think it is a world-class regulator. There's no question about that. But I think with the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union, we have been provided with a once-in-a-generation uh, opportunity to reshape our regulatory environment in a way that could be uh, far more effective in uh, bringing much needed new drugs to patients in both a faster and presumably a less costly way. So many of the countries around the globe are developing or trying to improve their offer for the life sciences industry. And I think to compete, given the opportunity that we have, we need to specialize, be strategic, and we need to play to our strengths. And we have considerable strengths. We need to be conscious of them and to use them wisely. So we could be leveraging the impressive scale of the NHS and our dynamic uh, commercial sector so that we can expedite trials and uh, deliver world-leading transformative treatments at uh, speed. So we could, for example, introduce a risk proportionate or risk-based approach to our designs of clinical trials. And we need to ensure that there is enough long-term funding and adequate resourcing across our research community. The UK will then be able to enhance its competitiveness and hopefully reverse the decline of early stage trials that we have seen uh, taking place in the United Kingdom. Just to echo something that Charles said a moment ago, there is a burgeoning health science, fundamental health science center, biosciences in the United Kingdom. And the gateway to translating those scientific advances into improved human health is the first in human clinical trial. This is the first time that a new molecule will be put into a human being. It needs to be highly regulated. The patients, the patient safety, the safety of volunteers, 
need to be at the center. But I do not feel that it should be a bottleneck. It could be a point in the development flow where, where we could take a, an, interna- an international lead. And that's what I would be keen to see government focusing on. So following up on that, one of the things that is coming out of that is that the regulatory environment that a country has is actually contributing to the the competitiveness of the sector in some of these things. And how does the UK's clinical trial environment now compare with other countries, particularly in this area of early stage research? Giles, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, recently we've had the tremendous example of development of the COVID vaccine. And in 2020, the UK had the third highest number of COVID-19 commercial trials in the world. However, the story in early phase research is somewhat different. And there's a risk that the UK, and I gave the numbers earlier, is becoming less competitive compared to other global markets for early phase trials. And as we've said, these are critical for, for further development in medicine. You know, there are examples around the world of countries that have taken steps to improve their competitive position. And I think that is instructive. For example, Australia has seen growth in early phase trials due to system of financial incentives and rapid approvals. I think Spain's interesting because it's introduced measures to speed up the process for clinical trial application to first patient visit. And along it, alongside that, they've developed metrics such that um, they have a, um, a BA, BD metrics platform, which is a private public partnership to map R&D and clinical trial performance across most regions in Spain, which allows the country's competitiveness in clinical research to be closely tracked. So I think it's a, a, a matter of looking at the infrastructure, trying to make it more uh, efficient and then actually measuring what you do. And the platform in Spain has shown that the decade up to 2019 Um, investment in clinical trials has increased by 60%. So that has has proven very effective for Spain. I think there are a number of changes that the UK could make to improve its global competitiveness. One is, as we've discussed, ensuring that the current regulatory framework takes full account of advances in medical technology so we can actually get these medicines through to man quicker, ensuring patient safety, of course. Um, We need to offer improved guidance for early stage clinical trials, and then supporting clinical research with a long-term spending package and making sure that there are various initiatives in place, but they need to be joined up and coordinated. For example, as a company, we see major delays in administrative activities, such as contracting referral patients between NHS trusts. It now takes nearly a year to go from identifying a site in the UK to enrolling a patient, whereas other countries are doing better than that. This is not building on the gains we saw during vaccine development. If I may just come in there, Gavin, too. Please do, yes. I would really like to see much more communication, cooperation, in fact, uh, between the regulators, uh, the drug developers, the NHS, and the academic centres with their their national networks of uh, clinical research facilities. We have all the bits, it's just that they're not geared up to work together as an engine. And I would really recommend that we have far more effective 
communication, cooperation between all the players. Now, we already said that the, the safety of patients and volunteers must always be at the centre of uh, clinical trials. And the clinical trials must demonstrate to the regulator that the new drug, the candidate drug, um, is effective and acceptably safe. But I do think that there is another priority, and that should be for the regulator not to inhibit or to slow down the delivery of new and much needed better medicines. And there are patients that need them now. So we've got to accelerate the flow through from very impressive scientific advances into benefits for patients. And it's not enough just to be sure that a drug is effective and acceptably safe. We must not inhibit the development of better and much needed drugs. Well, Gordon, let me follow up on that. You're a former chair of the MHRA. You will have been interacting with the government whilst you were doing that role. Do you think the government understands this? Do you think they understand what's needed to create this more dynamic and competitive regulatory environment to lead to faster drugs to patients now, which is what you've just been describing? Yes, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I think all, all of the insights, all of the recognition is there somewhere, but I don't think it's sufficiently joined up at present. And I think we must remember the rate, of, the rate at which sciences are advancing. We're talking in terms of silence therapeutics about a nucleic acid medicine or a medicine based on nucleic acid. This is, this is a new modality with, with huge potential, probably uh, more potential than monoclonal antibody that transformed the, the treatment of, of many diseases so far. So it is imperative that the relevant parts of government keep evolving the ideas for creating an ideal regulatory environment against an ever-changing background, because it, it is, it's changing rapidly. So from my experience with the MHRA, I know that the agency is scientifically very uh, competent. It's uh, at the leading edge on, in most areas, but it's crucial that the government aids and assists the MHRA, the regulator, to be focused and specialized and interactive with the other parties involved in this industry. So I would stress focusing on having as much dialogue as possible with drug developers so processes can be understood multilaterally and can be tailored accordingly to be effective, efficient, quicker, and less costly. So one of the things that both of you have mentioned during your remarks so far has been the NHS. And of course, the NHS is one of the defining features of the UK landscape, because it's a little bit different to other countries. How do you think 
the NHS itself could be used to help bring about some of the changes you've been talking about, a more dynamic clinical trial environment. Giles, do you want to start us off? You know, again, I think we have a very recent example of how the NHS can be mobilised to really help develop um, new treatments, and in this case, vaccines. And then again, the NHS recovery trial for the COVID treatment dexamethasone was, was, was instrumental in showing the, the benefit of that, uh, which with an estimated one million lives saved. So there's huge potential. And I think it could really turbocharge the UK clinical trials environment. But as we know, it faces significant resource constraints. And so it's under in that scenario, it's really important that the MHRA and the NHS clinical workforce is properly resourced and supported to support uh, new innovative trials while bouncing back from the pandemic. We know that research now is becoming hardwired uh, into the NHS in terms of it, it, its mandate, but it really needs, as we've been talking about, being being um, coordinated. As Gordon mentioned, we have these clinical research facilities which are university-based and government-funded. They should be collaborating much more closely with the private sector to generate what could be a world-beating environment for early clinical trials. And then the NHS needs to work with academic and commercial sponsors to raise awareness of opportunities and encourage patients to take part. I mean, it's really there, the, the relationship with the patient and the doctor is critical for making them feel comfortable and you know, willing and see the benefit of participating in clinical trials. So that's absolutely critical. And again, as we've said, the enablers are there. The key is the collaboration between the different parties, industry, academia, regulators, and the NHS. Yeah, well, I would certainly echo and uh, reinforce that. I think we, we might uh, uh, take a lead from the example of oncology research, clinical trials in, in cancer therapies. This country, in fact, um, many countries have, have made great strides in this area. And some of our, at some of our uh, major cancer centers, pretty much every patient that gets admitted to hospital is offered to go on to a clinical trial. And indeed, many, many of them do. This has led to a very impressive acceleration of the effective drugs coming through now. And we, we are beginning to see a transformation in the clinical outcomes from different cancers because we have so many more effective tools uh, to treat them, in many cases, uh, in some cases, to cure them. So I would probably focus on what the cancer doctors did in the cancer hospitals and see what we can learn for other areas of, of medicine. And I do think that we should focus on the highly technical products that are being developed now, which are not conventional medicines in the ways that we would have defined them even 10 years ago and really require their own form of regulation. For example, a, a very quick example, we're very good at making new vaccines for winter flu, and we make a different vaccine with every winter, and we take the 
strains that are operating in the southern hemisphere winter during our summer, and we make vaccines with those strains. But the regulator doesn't require the entire vaccine to go through the mill of all the, the tests and conditions. It just needs to be sure that the new flu vaccines that are being dropped in to a vehicle are both effective and acceptably safe. All the other bits that make up that vaccine do not need to go through the same process because they haven't changed. So this approach to technology platforms, I think is a very good thing and it could be widened. But as Giles has said, it's going to take quite a lot of communication, mutual understanding, where the risks are and how you manage them. But I do, I do see that if we make the right changes and choices now, we can truly uh, become a, a global power in the development of exciting new medicines. Well, that leads me on to my last question, which I'll put to Giles. You know, assuming these things go right, where might we be in five years' time? What will be the, the signs that show that the UK is becoming or has become a world leader in this early phase clinical trial space? Well, I think, you know, the proof will be in the numbers. If the UK is a world leader in five years' time, we'll have seen a significant growth in the number of early phase trials initiated and run in the UK, attracting companies from all around the world. And, you know, as we've said, getting there will require greater support for early stage clinical research with an aligned approach, bringing all the enabling bioscience infrastructure that we have, including manufacturing, which is something we haven't mentioned, but which is, which is also critical, universities, industry, and the NHS to the same table. Uh, we need a streamlined, much more efficient clinical trial process that can erase a lot of the bureaucracy that we see in setting these things up. Again, the pandemic showed how quickly we can go. If we work hard at something, we can go really fast. After all, we went from sequence to clinical trials in 65 days. Obviously, give that that was an international emergency. And then finally, I think we need a, a more attractive incentive structure for commercial companies to invest. I mean, that's essentially what Australia's offering and the companies are going there. And I think these changes would help to ensure a really bright future for the UK science sector. I think it's got all the components and it would really put it in a position to benefit the health and the wealth of the nation. Well, let's see how far we get in the next five years. Uh, it's a wonderful discussion, but that's all we have time for today. So, uh, Dr. Campion, Professor Duff, thank you both very much. Thanks, Gavin. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guests this week were Dr. Giles Campion, Head of Research and Development at Silence Therapeutics, and Professor Sir Gordon Duff, Chairman of the Science Advisory Board of Silence Therapeutics and former Principal of St Hilda's College, Oxford. You can find details of all the activities of the Foundation, including all of our events, all our blogs and all previous editions of this podcast on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Until next time. Goodbye.